Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Jason Schreier on Press Reset. First, wanted to let you know to check out booksonpod.com to hear all of our episodes and subscribe to this podcast. And for the latest on this show, follow us on social media. That's Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Books on Pod. Hello there. I'm David Pofelt, Managing Director of Massive Entertainment, creators of The Division, among many other things. I'm also the author of Dream Architects. You're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Trey, it's been a tremendous pleasure to be here with you. Thanks a lot. Hello, readers. Jason Schreier covers the video game industry for Bloomberg and is the best-selling author of Blood, Sweat, and Pixels. And he's just come out with his second book, Press Reset, Ruin and Recovery in the Video Game Industry. Jason, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Hey, Trey. Thanks so much for having me. How are you? Doing very well, thank you. So early on in Press Reset, you say that Blood, Sweat, and Pixels was a result of you wanting to know why video games are so hard to make. What was your curiosity with this book? Yeah, so Press Reset, um, I uh, set off. So after I finished Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, which came out in 2017, I was like, okay, got to figure out what my next book is going to be. Went on a couple of false leads and then eventually landed on the question of what happens when a game studio shuts down? Because it seems to happen all the time in wild and spectacular fashion. Um, And so I knew that there were some really uh, bonkers stories out there that I wanted to get into for this book. And I said, okay, what happens to people when game studios shut down? What do they do? How do they feel about it? How do they recover? What do they do next? And as a result of that, is the answer to that question, uh, uh, how often is the answer to that question, they burn out of the video game world entirely and leave for, for more stable fields. And so I decided to incorporate all that into a book that kind of asks the question, A, why is the video game industry so volatile and what ha- what happened to make it this way? And B, how can things be fixed? And yeah, the results of that are, are press reset, which comes out May 11th, and I'm really excited about it. So at the root of all of this is that this industry consists of a built-in tension between creative people and money people. How does this process manifest itself throughout making a video game? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the tension at the heart of all art, really. Uh, uh, in, in capitalism, at least, it's, it's the question of like, okay, can I afford to make this piece of art I really want to make? Um, will it Will it sell enough copies or make enough money in some way or another to to justify me continuing to make art or to allow me to continue to make art? And yeah, there are all sorts of uh, all sorts of wrinkles and complications there. But in the video game industry, it's a lot of publicly traded big companies whose uh, fiduciary duties are to make money for shareholders who employ a lot of artists and the artists. Um, most of them probably could not care less about how much money they're making for shareholders. They just want to make cool stuff and make their own money and, and be able to live like happy, successful lives as a result. So yeah, uh, you always have that tension. You always have, there are a lot of people in the book who I spoke to and spotlighted who, who have had to deal with that tension manifesting in various ways. Um, Warren Spector, for example, this legendary designer, creator of uh, many, many games that he was the director of Deus Ex, among others. Um, he talked often uh, and uh, talked a lot in this book about how he 
only really wants to make games that are profitable, but executives above him always want them always want him to make games that are exponentially profitable. It's not enough just to make a game that like makes a million dollars. You need to make make a game that makes ten million dollars and then a hundred million dollars after that. So yeah, it, it can be unsustainable, but that tension is always going to be there, um, and it really is fundamental to a lot of the problems. And it also, I mean, it allows like without the money people, there would be no game. So so as part of um, short of dismantling our whole economic system um, that is there is some benefit from the money people as well but yes that tension is there has always been there since since the inception of art and inevitably the profitability is going to be tied into the fun of the game do people enjoy playing that game I didn't think about this until reading your book but at some point they do have to deal with how are we going to make this concept into something that is fun to play around with with the controller in your hand where along the way is it generally decided about the fun of a game and how does that process tend to play out yeah, it's really interesting, right? Because in like software development, in most in most sane uh, industries, you can kind of have an idea of like what something's going to look like and how it'll all play out before you even get started. So in software, let's say I want to make a a piece of software that um, allows me to video conference with my friends. It's either it either works or it doesn't, and there might be some like artistic decisions you make along the way, like how is it going to function, what what technologies are going to use, what are the borders going to look like on the screen. But like at the end of the day, it either works or it doesn't. So video games take that aspect, so they have to work, they have to function as software, and then also have this nebulous concept of fun, like a game has to be fun. And that's such a strange concept that like, I think most people, it's still very difficult to like wrap your head around the concept. And so if I'm a game designer and I say, okay, I'm going to make a game where you're a plumber and you have to save your princess from a giant evil turtle, and so you have to run on, across the screen and stomp on, uh, stomp on little mushrooms to, to to make your way across and jump over pits. Um, it might cool. It might sound really cool in my head, but like until I actually have designed it and like have my hands on the controller and I'm feeling how what it feels like to jump and like making little tweaks to make it feel maybe a little bit better until you're actually like getting your hands on the thing. You have no idea if it's going to work. So like I think that that is fundamentally one of the reasons that game making is so difficult is that you can have all these amazing ideas in your head that just never play out and like you need to suddenly reboot everything a year into development because it's like oh my god all these all these perfect plans we had a year ago they're not working what should we do? So so yeah, it's it's a fascinating world. You do tell a number of uh, very entertaining stories in this book involving people from all the different levels of video game production. And that includes a guy by the name of Zach Mumbach. Who is Zach and how did he get his foot in the door in the video game business? Yeah, so Zach has this amazing story. One of the things I wanted to do, I should say, before, just as a quick preface, um, after Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, a lot of people really enjoyed this one chapter that was about a game called Stardew Valley, and it was following this kind of this, the human story of this one guy making that game. And one of the things I really wanted to do with this book was highlight a bunch of different human stories. And so Zach's is one of those. And so what I did was um, I kind of traced Zach's history and career through the games industry all the way up to him going through a studio shutdown and the repercussions of that. So his story is fascinating. So he was a uh, uh, at 
QA, in QA, which means he started off as a tester, um, which essentially means that he plays games all day, but not in the way that you and I might play a game. He plays games in a way where he runs into walls or like repeats the same mechanics over and over again to see if something's broken. Essentially, your job is to find bugs and report them to the rest of the staff. So he he did that for a while. That's considered kind of the bottom of the totem pole when it comes to the games, the games industry hierarchy. Um, and so he was a tester for a long time, uh, eventually worked his way up to be a producer um, and had all sorts of interesting obstacles and conflicts along the way, um, including his own kind of issues with workaholism. Um, and yeah, and then he he kind of had to deal with the studio shutting down after he was at EA for something like 18 years, 17 years. Um, uh, two days after his his he had a child, his one of his children was born. Um, and yeah, it's it's a wild story. He's uh, oh his entry level. I was gonna say his entry level story is pretty pretty ridiculous. Essentially, he showed up to EA after graduating high school and was like, hey, uh, uh, I, I want a job and it turns out that the day he showed up they were like about to hire a bunch of testers and they're just like okay come on in your name's not on the list but whatever you can come in anyway it must have been a mistake or something and literally that's how he got the job by just showing up at ea with a copy of his resume (laughs) that is wild so is working as a qa also known as quality assurance i know you just called it a tester that's the simplest way to explain it to somebody is that as plush a gig as it sounds, even though it's the low person on the totem pole? I mean, we, most of us have seen Grandma's Boy, and we saw how much fun those guys got to have. And is that a pretty fun gig, even though you are going back through and playing levels over and over again? It is not quite Grandma's Boy. I mean, for starters, QA is the lowest paid field in gaming. Oftentimes, it's minimum wage or barely above minimum wage. Um, it is. It is oftentimes QA people don't get the same benefits and perks as the rest of the staff because they're they're hired through contracting agencies, so they can get away with not giving them the same benefits as everybody else. Um, they're looked down upon by the rest of the industry. And the job itself, like I said, it's it's playing games in a very different way than you might play games normally. And gets to the point where it's not actually all that fun to play the game because if you're a QA tester on I don't know Grand Theft Auto um, instead of playing through the missions and like having fun the way a normal person might you might have to like go to every single nook and cranny of the map wearing different outfits and then testing it out again wearing like where just alternating outfits every time like go to the same place wearing a different outfit or like drive the car into every single building on the map to see if it crashes through or if it works properly and you might just be doing the most tedious activities and like sometimes even even normal game players find tedium in games like sometimes the game is tedious it's like oh my god i have to go and kill 10 rats i don't want to do that imagine doing that like every single day for 12 hours a day like the same tedium over and over again it really it it can be miserable i mean some people really enjoy it and it can be really uh, satisfying gratifying work because you're finding bugs and helping making make these games better but like most qa people at the end of the day after their jobs the last thing they want to do is touch a video game so yeah it's it's a different world than grandma's boy i would say turn you into charlie kelly king of the video game rats i guess now i vaguely <laughs> exactly i vaguely yes, remember exactly. hearing about kurt schilling as a video game ceo and that's really from his company going under a few years back how did he end up in charge of 38 studios and what sort of leader was he 
Oh, man, what a story. So, first of all, funny thing about Charlie Kelly, those guys, the Always Sunny guys, actually have a show about video games called Mythic Quest that, that I actually really enjoy. Yeah, fun fun little digression there. Um, it's actually really funny. It's on Apple TV. Uh, I think they're about to release a new season, or there's a new season that just came out. Um, okay, back on track. Uh, yeah, Kurt Schilling, so former Red Sox pitcher, legendary uh, baseball player. He ends his career about 2008-ish um, and decided really decided towards the end of his career, before he even retired, he decided he wanted to make a video game company, and that was going to be his post-baseball life, starting a game company. And he decided... Um, not to start small, he decided he was going to come off with a big splash. He was going to hire the best talent. He was going to make a game, an MMO, which is an online game. He was going to take on World of Warcraft with this big, massive multiplayer game. Um, and yeah, things did not go well. Um, although he did wind up like treating people really well and hiring staff and like giving them all star treatment, big good perks and and um, benefits and and salaries. Um, what wound up happening was in about 2011, they decided to move to Massachusetts, for, uh, to Rhode Island from Massachusetts, where they were originally based, and um, in exchange for a loan guarantee from the state of Rhode Island for $75 million. But over the next year, they burned through the money, had still not made a game, and got to the point where they were just straight up bankrupt. And in May of 2012, the employees of 38 came to work one day and f- suddenly they all realized that they hadn't gotten paid. And for the next few days, it was just bedlam. It was just chaos in the office. And eventually they were just, after like 10 days or so, they were all just laid off. Unceremoniously stranded in Rhode Island, um, where there are no other video game companies. So they would have to move and uproot their lives again if they wanted to stay in the games industry. Um, yeah, didn't get their final paycheck, so so were robbed of a final paycheck. And uh, yeah, it was just a disaster. And Kurt Schelling just completely mismanaged the situation and allowed them to run out of money. Um, he blames Lincoln Chaffee, who was the, the governor of Rhode Island at the time. And there's a lot of politics and interesting drama behind the scenes that, that the book dives into there, um, not only involving 38 Studios, but also involving another company that they bought in Maryland called Big Huge Games. But yeah, at the end of the day, um, a lot of people were screwed over. Some people, actually, this is particularly wild. Um, the company had offered to, so a lot of people, when they first came to 38 Studios, they had bought houses in Massachusetts. Um, and so when the company said, we all have to move to Rhode Island, what they did was they offered to buy the houses, essentially, or take over the mortgages of anyone who couldn't sell their houses. So if you had a house in Massachusetts, you couldn't sell it. Um, 38 said, okay, we're going to take your mortgage. We'll pay it off until we find our own buyer. And so you can come to Rhode Island and, and don't have to worry about that. Um, of course, what happened was when the company ran out of money, suddenly about six people or seven people whose houses still had not hold found that had not sold, found that they were uh, <laughs> inherited those mortgages once again. Like like somewhere in the fine print of the documentation, it said, "Hey, if you if you did this, then it all falls back to you, and you are now responsible for paying these mortgages." So, yeah, uh, the the. Uh, mismanagement of shilling really screwed over a lot of people. And since then, I mean, he's gone off the deep end in, in all sorts of ways. And I mean, it's, I don't think it's, it's a giant leap to, to conclude that a lot of the 38 experience kind of broke him in some ways. 
Yeah, no doubt about that. And considering how much he has stepped in it since his baseball career has ended, I'm assuming that he is largely to blame with what happened at 38 Studios. Now, when a company shutters like that so suddenly, Jason, it leaves an empty workplace that is often filled with hundreds of thousands of dollars in video game equipment. Do spurned video game employees ever swipe the proverbial stapler on their way out in situations like that? So it's interesting. Okay, so I think there are like two different types of video game shutdowns, right? One is what I would call a humane video game shutdown. And that is essentially the company behind your company saying, look, we need to close the studio for whatever reason. It's not making money or we've decided to do other creative things, whatever. It always sucks. But the humane way to do it is to say, give people notice, say, we're giving you severance. Maybe everybody gets two months of pay while they can look for other jobs and help people find other jobs, do job fairs, maybe place people elsewhere in the company. Um, EA, for example, is very good about when they lay people off or, sh- or shut down studios. They give people the opportunity to like apply elsewhere within EA and potentially find jobs elsewhere in EA before they even have to have to look for uh, elsewhere. Um, so that's a humane shutdown. What happened with 38 was the total opposite. It was, and this has happened a few times in the games industry. It's essentially you are suddenly not employed anymore and we are out of money and there's nothing we can do about it. Um, it should be illegal. It probably is illegal under some labor laws, although labor laws are hard to enforce and, and pretty weak these days. But, um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, it's really just horrifying and the worst possible thing that you can do to these people. And so I think in the humane situation, when it's handled professionally, there aren't a lot of people being like, all right, I'm going to nab this, uh, this PS4 on my way out. Maybe people will take their favorite pens or whatever, but nobody's going to, I don't think it's very common for people to start stealing computers in that case. But in cases like 38 studios where it's like, Hey, you, the company stole our money and like robbed us of our final paycheck anyway, then why wouldn't they go and take home office computers? It's like, Hey, if you're not going to pay me the whatever thousands of dollars I might be owed, then yeah, I'm going to take home some equipment. You owe me money. <laughs> so yeah, so so that's the answer is like people are more willing to more likely to do that in a case where the shutdown is inhumane as opposed to where the shutdown is handled well. Oh, screw them at that point. Now, the video game industry is a lot like a big city and that it so effortlessly chews people up and spits them out. This book does a great job of pointing out so many examples of that. Is anything substantive being done right now to try and change this, Jason? I don't know. I mean, I hope so. Uh, There's a lot of conversations behind the scenes among game developers about things like um, unionization. Unionization has been a big hot topic in the video game industry for the past few years because unlike film or unlike many other um, forms of art, there are no unions in the North American video game industry. There's some in Europe, but but that's a different world um, in terms of labor laws and and what what people can do. Um, But in North America, there are no unions and that might change. I just saw a stat last week um, that there was a survey by the GDC, the Game Developers Conference, saying that um, more than half, about 51% of game developers want to unionize. And then another like 25% on top of that said maybe or they're not sure. So there is definitely room there as well. So it seems inevitable. Um, The only questions are like, when is that going to happen? How is it going to happen? But yeah, I mean, that's the type of thing. And I point this out in the book in Press Reset that like, if you're a 38 Studios, if they had a union, then they could maybe make it so instead of shutting down when they ran out of money, maybe the company could shut down a couple months earlier and give people a landing, give people severance and, and allow for, for 
the that to be a humane shutdown rather than the inhumane shutdown that it turned out to be. How has COVID impacted the video game business over the last 14 plus months now? I think similar to most, uh, productivity has certainly gone down at game companies, um, but but it's impossible to know why that is. Like whether it's because people are home or because uh, because of COVID and the the devastating toll it's taken on so many people and their mental health and their physical health and and childcare and all the other all the other disaster that uh, problems that we had to deal with here. Um, yeah, I mean, something that I found really interesting, I actually finished the book or finished the bulk of the book uh, in February of 2020. So before anything started. And one of the things that I was exploring as a potential solution for some of these problems was actually remote work. So it turned out, it worked out nicely that that COVID hit, um, not nicely, but it, it was it was a crazy timing that COVID hit and forced everyone to start doing, uh, working remotely, just as I had started exploring this idea. Because this idea I had was that essentially it's, it's if you lose your job in the games industry, it sucks. But what sucks about it most is that if you want to stay in the games industry, um, and there are often jobs in the games industry, it's it's not if you have experience, if you have like big titles on your resume, um, it's not super difficult to find another job. The problem is that you will probably have to move to another city for that job because there's no centralized game game developers hub. You have companies all over um, in Seattle and LA and San Francisco and Vancouver and Montreal all over the place, right? So um, if 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 you could if you were in Rhode Island if you were at 38 Studios and suddenly you lost your job there, um, essentially you you can either uh, find another job in another industry or you can uproot your life and take your kids out of school and move somewhere else to uh, to go find a job in the games industry. Um, allowing for remote work would just change everything because that would provide this other option. It would allow people to be like, okay, well, my studio shut down. I'm stuck in Rhode Island, but I could get another job at another company without pulling my kids out of school and tearing my life apart to do it. So that could really change a lot of things. And I'm very curious. And we're still kind of like, like all companies right now are trying to figure out, okay, are we going to allow people to work from home? What's this going to look like moving forward? Um, And I'm very curious to see what happens with the games industry uh, as we move forward. Epic Games and Apple are in a pretty nasty court battle right now involving Fortnite. Why are they in court and what's the most profound thing to come from those proceedings so far? Yeah, well, so um, it's been really, really interesting. Um, It's hard for me to tell. It's so funny. I've been paying attention, obviously, and reading every day. And it's impossible for me to tell, like, who's winning. And I've been reading all these different analysts' opinions. uh, And everybody has completely, drastically different opinions on whether, like, Epic is making a good case that Apple has a monopoly and is violating antitrust laws or Apple is defending themselves well. Um, It's it's very difficult to tell. and, And nobody knows what this judge is going to wind up deciding, although, I believe that the judge has ruled in Apple's favor in the in the past, so it seems like that might be the way things are trending. But um, but really, I think Epic might win no matter what because they have embarrassed Apple and gotten a lot of people to confront and talk about the fact that like Apple really does have. Um, this monopoly over iPhone gaming. And because the iPhone is so ubiquitous and because anyone who uses, who, who releases an, iP- an iPhone app has to go through Apple's store and therefore has to pay Apple the 30% commission for all of their games and apps and in-app purchases, which is the big sticking point here, the in-app purchases. Um, it, it's it's really been interesting to see that and see the cases that, that, that Epic is making. 30% commission? 
That's the yeah, that's what this whole that's what this whole trial is about. So Apple essentially says, so Fortnite, for example, is free to play, right? Epic makes most of its money, all of its money on Fortnite through um in-app purchases. And so you go in uh, and you can buy a costume or like an, uh, a gesture, a dance or whatever. You can you can spend money on all these things. Um, and so Apple makes Epic go through its own purchasing methods for all of those, for all of those microtransactions is what they're called. Um, so Apple takes 30%, despite the fact that Apple isn't actually doing anything there. Like uh, they might be uh, ensuring that the payment is secure or whatever, but like it's not like they're offering a service there to Epic. And in fact, part of Epic's case is that being on Apple prioritizes like its own stuff and just does not do a very good job of servicing developers on the App Store. For example, one point that Epic has brought up is that when you search for Fortnite on the Apple Store, um, like five other things come up first, including like advertisements for other games and like Fortnite competitors, and it's all just kind of a mess. Uh, the same way Google is, and how people can pay for like ad placement on Google to to like uh, screw over their competitors and like get a leg up on their competitors, get a higher result than their competitors. So yeah, it's all kind of it's a, it's a fascinating case, and I'm very curious to see what happens as a result of all this. There's obviously big money throughout this business. Are cryptocurrencies factoring into the video game industry at all right now? And do you see that continuing to grow over the coming years and decades? They are. I mean, I think I happen to think personally that it all just seems like kind of a scam, kind of a, a fad to me. But um, I've definitely seen, I actually wrote a story a few weeks ago about a guy, about the trend of NFTs among video game artists and how they're using that to try to make money selling NFTs of their work. Um, and in some cases have been wildly successful and made a lot in, in cryptocurrency. Um, I have been, yeah, I mean, I've got, I've certainly gotten tons of PR pitches of the past three years that are like, our game is on the blockchain, and I'm still not sure what that means or <laughs> how relevant it is to anybody. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely a thing. Personally, the the um, environmental cost of cryptocurrency is really um, weighed on me, and, and I think a lot of people in the games industry have criticized NFTs as a result of that, um, the environmental impact that they have. So yeah, I don't know. It, it's it's hard to say. Um, I just heard a, like a rumor that like some company was thinking about paying employees and cryptocurrency and it also just seems ridiculous um so yeah we'll we'll see what happens there i'm a little skeptical though nintendo announced a new game this week called game builder it literally teaches its players how to develop video games you think this is a good thing for the industry in terms of its employees Oh yeah, phenomenal thing. Okay, so the context here, the larger context here, is that there's a company called Roblox. I don't know if you've heard of them, Roblox. Um, this thing is, uh, they make a game of the same name, Roblox, and that thing is the hottest thing among kids um, between like 8 and 12. If you find a kid on the street, find a kid anywhere between 8 and 12, ask them about Roblox, they almost certainly play it or have friends who play it. This thing is humongous. It just had an IPO um, a month ago where it was valued at some ridiculous inflation amount something like 60 billion dollars and something a little too preposterous but but still it shows the kind of impact that this game is having and so roblox is essentially a game making tool you log in and you can make your own games and you can play your friends games and you can download games and buy games and it's a giant marketplace for games and for creativity and people love that stuff people eat it up especially kids who want an outlet for their creativity and obviously parents love having seeing their kids be creative with that sort of thing um and nintendo's 
version will likely be Roblox has some issues, um, security and copyright and, and all sorts of issues. Nintendo tends to be a little more um, secure and uh, uh, have more of a walled garden, almost like Apple when it comes to that sort of thing. So I imagine that their version of it will be um, way more, way more clamped down and, and kid friendly. But yeah, I mean, I think it's a brilliant idea and will will be a just great creative outlet. I mean, my my kid is is almost two, so not she's not old enough just yet. But um, I would certainly let her play something like this if she was a couple years older. You think by the time your daughter is, I don't know, a teenager or perhaps a full fledged adult that. VR headsets will have just fully indoctrinated themselves into the process of playing video games or are people always going to want to still be able to use their eyes and look around the room and see what else is going on in reality as they play their video games. I think the latter. I think VR is a fad that people thought like four or five years ago was the hottest thing ever and injected all this money into. And then clearly there was not a market for it. Um, I think it's it's nice as like a supplementary thing for people who are into it. But games, I mean, uh, a, not a lot of people really want to be putting on a headset and like losing themselves in a game, especially people who have kids, especially people who like, I don't know. I mean, you really want to be if there's like a fire in your house, you really want to be like trapped in a VR world where you can't hear or see anything i don't know that sort of thing freaks me out but no i'm i'm just not not interested in in that sort of thing and i really think i'm very very bearish on vr i would say i think it'll always exist as like a cool like like supplementary thing something that is fun to do every once in a while that has like a niche audience um but but as a ubiquitous thing no absolutely not i think that screens and controllers will still be just as prominent in 10 years and 20 years as they are today. Thank goodness. Ready Player One does not seem like the best idea for society. I don't know if fat is the (laughs) right term for this next industry, but it does feel like eSports has leveled off over the last few years. It was receiving such a buzz five years ago, even two, three years ago. Do you think this industry has leveled off a little bit or does it still have more room to grow? Yeah, esports. I mean, what we saw there was kind of the classic capitalistic problem where it was there was definitely interest. There were definitely tons of people who wanted to watch esports, play esports, um, and then it, it got injected with so much money from venture capitalists and like outside investors that it it became this giant bubble. And then when those people realized that like there wasn't enough there just yet, they started quietly pulling out. And and now, yeah, it definitely feels like it's deflated. Um, the thing that's interesting about esports is that it's um, it's not like one big thing. There aren't like one. I mean, there are a few big games that that could be considered like the biggest esports, League of Legends and Overwatch and stuff. But um, but because they are so different and have so many different quirks and and um, rules and ways of being played and characters and stuff, it's very difficult to really follow all of them. Um, you kind of have to pick one and stick with it. And even then, it's so difficult to like get your outside observer to make it visible. Like the visible visibility problem has just been such an issue for esports. I, for example, I mean, I play tons of games. I've been following the video game industry. It's my my job is to follow the video game industry. And I can't watch League of Legends esports because I just have no idea what's going on. And, and I am someone who's played games all my life and should recognize what's going on, right? So, like, you have to really know the game to get into it as opposed to... I don't know, football, where like you, you watch a wide receiver going out and like catching an amazing pass, and anybody in the world can appreciate that. Uh, League of Legends, because it's such a very specific thing, it's very difficult to tell. Um, like you, you could see the announcers getting really excited about a, a match or whatever, a, a special play, but like 
as an outside observer, you just have no idea what's going on. So that problem seems to me in, to be insurmountable um, until you, unless you find the right games. And really, it's going to come down to that. Like, are there going to be games that are watchable enough that like I could pull my wife over and be like, look at this cool thing that just happened, and she'll actually understand it. Like, once we hit that, then esports can become part of the cultural um, uh, zeitgeist. But like right now it's just so niche um that even 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 niche can can it can be niche without like and still reach millions of people because there are millions of people watching league of legends and starcraft and stuff like that but it just cannot really penetrate the the tens of millions the hundreds of millions that it might need to in order to be um what esports can potentially be feels very much like what nascar was at the start of this century where there was just a huge Mm -hmm. buzz for it and eventually you realize that it was like you just said, a little bit more niche than what yeah. they thought their growth potential was. Yeah, and I should say it's totally fine if like League of Legends esports or, or StarCraft esports or whatever becomes like NASCAR, where it's never going to become like the big conversation every week the way football is. But that's okay because it can still be super profitable and and um, lucrative for people who are really into it. it. Like not everything needs to be exponential growth. That's such a it's such a thing. It's like a a big thing. It's actually a big part of press reset. Also. So is like this this need for exponential growth, which is such a it's it's just yeah late stage capitalism just demands constant constant growth, and it gets to the point where like even if you're making money, making a healthy profit, and like being sustainable, having a sustainable business, that is not enough for shareholders, and that's the point where it's like oh man, like this is this is this is a problem. Obviously, the GameStop stock story from a couple months ago was wonderful on its surface. A bunch of little guys banding together to stick it to a, a corporation or corporations looking to profiteer on failing businesses. But did that have any sort of tangible impact on the video game business as a whole? Man, I wish that was the story, but it really is not. Um, just the GameStop CEO left last week, I believe, and he had an exit package worth at least $100 million thanks to all that stock inflation. Really, the, as as always, the people who really benefited... I mean, don't get me wrong. There were some like people on Reddit who like maybe made... 30 grand or something and like change their lives and that's amazing but like the people who really benefited are as always the hedge funds and the massive stock owner holders and the executives the c-suite um but yes i mean as far as industry-wide impact no it didn't really have any impact on that i don't know what the future of gamestop looks like part of what was silly and crazy about that whole scenario is that gamestop was a failing business so for it was kind of like an ironic joke to make gamestop run up their stock um when this is a company that was just like uh, uh, dying and closing stores every week and and just like uh, really failing, um, but yeah, no, it's uh, uh, I don't I don't know as as far as the business at large, but I think GameStop is going to have to do some big pivots, and it seems like they're planning to like try to invest in e-commerce and change their business around. Um, who knows what the the big stock thing? Who knows what the the Robin Hood effect will have on that company long term? All right, last question, Jason. This is going to be the most important thing I ask you today. Mortal Kombat is the latest video game to find its way to the silver screen, albeit a second iteration from the 1990s movie. What's the best movie ever adapted from a video game? Oh man, that's a good question. I have fond memories of the Super Mario Brothers movie from from the 90s, um, which is ridiculous. I think Dennis Hopper was, was in it as like 
King Koopa. Um, so, so that one. But really, there are no good video game movies. It's just been this trend of like, no good gaming movies. The one thing that I will say is that um, I've been heartened by seeing Netflix um, get into get really into like video game series where it seems like they're a lot better equipped. I mean, the Witcher series, for example, based on the the the, the fantasy novels that were best known for the RPGs from Poland. Um, that has been widely uh, critically acclaimed, and Netflix has been since then been gobbling up all sorts of video game franchises in hopes of turning them into series. So I think that could work out well. And then the other thing is that Nintendo has been like officially like sanctioning some new stuff, like new Mario animated films. And so we'll see what happens with that. I believe they're working with um, Luminary, the makers of Minions, on like a Mario film. So we'll see what happens there. Um, but yeah, Mortal Kombat by by most accounts seems to be pretty bad, and I just don't have any faith in any video game movies. Oh, Lord, no. You know, it's interesting you say that. I guess trying to make a movie off of a video game is an extension of the movie never being better than the book. There's just so much (laughs) minutiae and detail that you can't jam into 90 minutes or perhaps two hours that a series that can take 10 episodes in a season and then go beyond that if they want to can, can do a much better job of probing. I mean, it also speaks to how um, terrible most video game storytelling and lore is and how like we only put up with that stuff because the game is fun to play. (laughs) (laughs) That's a fair point as well. Jason Schreier covers the video game industry for Bloomberg and is the best-selling author of Blood, Sweat, and Pixels. And he's just come out with his second book, Press Reset, Ruin and Recovery in the Video Game Industry. Jason, thank you so much for the time today and thank you for this very entertaining book. Thank you for having me, Trey. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoy my chat with Jason or any of the authors I speak with enough to want to buy the book, just click on the book title through the episode description wherever you're listening to this podcast, and it takes you to a link to buy that book through bookshop.org. I love bookshop.org because it connects readers with independent bookstores. And if you're on Apple Podcasts right now and like what we're doing, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.